0: may be seated. That is a beautiful song. It tells a rich story of the love that God has for me, the love that God has for you, the love that God has for mankind, for the whole world to see. I want you to think about that thought for a moment as you turn to Romans chapter 1. And so whether you use your Bibles this morning, a pew Bible, you can find it on page 795, or you may want to use your smart device. I just want you to find Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start there, and we're going to take a little journey, and we're going to end up in Romans chapter 8. Now don't worry, I'm not going to read all of chapters 1 through 7, okay? I'm going to read some excerpts from those chapters leading us up to chapter 8. But I want you to think about the phrase in the song that we just sung. His dying breath is what gave us life. You see... We are here this morning because God loved us so much that he knew that the only way that we could have hope, the only way that we could have a chance in this world, he had to give up his best. He had to give up and sacrifice the one who meant the world to him, his only son. And so as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he is introducing himself to the church and he's introducing this fact that the message that he is proclaiming is a message of the gospel of the grace of God. It is written to both Jews and Gentiles, And here's a fact that we know, anytime a Jew and a Gentile was in the same room, there was going to be some kind of tension. There was going to be some kind of argument of who was saved and who was not, and who had it and who didn't. And so Paul is writing this to believers, and he's writing this to the church in Rome as a way to remind them of their salvation as a way to remind them of how good they have it because of the gospel. And so he talks about themes such as forgiveness and acceptance and new life that takes place in the Spirit of God. And he talks about how all of that is available to everyone, not just to Jews and not just to Gentiles, but to everyone that comes on to the scene. And so I want to I walk you through some reminders that these Christian believers needed to hear. And as Paul begins in chapter 1, he identifies himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. That's in chapter 1, verse 1. Before you forget, lest you forget, what you and I are, In the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are just servants of him. and So Paul recognizes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. He said, I've been called to be an apostle and I've been set apart for the gospel of God. Paul knew in his life, he knew his role, and he knew that his relationship with God was in such a way that he had been set apart, he had been chosen to take the gospel to other people, okay? And so beginning in chapter 1, here are some of these reminders that Paul paints for these believers that I want us to be reminded of this morning. He says in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He says it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then over in chapter 3, we're reminded of, of a bedrock verse that we all are familiar with when we turn to Romans. This righteousness, he says in verse 22, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Here's verse 23. Let's read this together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so he he paints a picture there that we're all on the same level. We're all on the same playing field. We all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And then over in chapter 5, chapter 4, he says these words The words it was credited to him were written not just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, everything that God set out and everything that God is displaying through his son Jesus, Paul says he did that for you. He did that because he loved you so much and he was delivered over to death and then he was raised to life for our justification And then over in chapter 5 another bedrock verse you see it just the right time when we were still powerless what did Christ do Christ died for the ungodly very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then over in chapter 6, I love chapter 6 as he is reminding the believers, this is what you did when you put on Christ. You reenacted the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? You died to yourself. You were raised to life, symbolizing the death and the burial of Jesus, and you were raised to live a new life. You were lived, you were raised to walk in newness, he says, of life. And so because of that, Because of where you stand and what you did to join Christ and to be a a believer in his name, in the same way, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Boy, that's something we need to do every day, isn't it? Count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's what we know to this very day. The moment that we take on Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, and we're raised up to live with Him, guess what? Satan knows that, and He is after you from that moment. And so we struggle. I mean, it's a daily struggle, just like Paul paints the picture here in chapter 7 of sin and of temptation and of what Satan puts our way, and look at the struggle that Paul puts himself in. And he lays this out as an example, and if you stop and think about it, you and I struggle with this very thing that Paul talks about. And here it is. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. There's Satan working again. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He's talking about his weak state at that point. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He says, what a wretched man I am, and because of that, who's going to come to my rescue? In other words, Paul is reminding the believers, hey, guess what? You are not good enough to save yourself. You're not good enough to take care of what Christ himself came to take care of. And so because of that, You've got to get to the point in your life where you can say those very words, who will rescue me? Who will come for me? Who will choose me and take me where I am and do for me what I cannot do for myself? And at that point, pride has to get out of the way because you are realizing and recognizing that the only person that can save me is Jesus Christ. Nobody else. When you realize that, what a beautiful place to be. What a beautiful place to be able to say, I can't do it any longer. I'm not good enough. We're all good people in this room, right? But you know what? You will never be good enough to save yourself. You will never be good enough to save somebody else. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Paul says. And So look at the rest of the story in chapter 8. As Paul is talking about life through the Spirit, here's the part that I want us to key in on. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Some of your versions may say that you are the sons of God. Now don't mistake that for the son of God. There's a difference in the son of God and the sons of God. Do you realize this morning, you and I are sons and daughters of the Most High. We don't belong to ourselves. That's a great place to be. To realize I've been adopted. I have been, as Paul would say later, grafted in to his life. Now, what did you do to deserve that? What did you do? Do this with me for a minute. Absolutely nothing. Now, that's a hard truth to grasp, isn't it? Because we have been raised to believe, I've got to do something. I've got to do enough good works to earn my salvation. I've got to do enough good things in order to be good enough to go to heaven. No, you do not. You can't do enough good things to get your way to heaven. The only way that takes place, Paul says, is to realize, oh, what a wretched man I am. I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. And so that's when you realize by God's Spirit, He begins to help you realize you are children of God. And so the Spirit you received, in verse 15, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption To sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Now, I read a lot of verses. And I know I typically do not read that much in a given sermon time. But you can't just start in chapter 8. You've got to build up to it to see what happens and how that takes place. And so all those verses that we just read is one simple reminder of this truth that's been around from the beginning of time, and that is God... Is for us. He's for us. Is that it, preacher? That's enough, isn't it? God is for us. And when you can realize and recognize that little declarative sentence, you have summed up the gospel. You have summed up what God has done for you and what he continues to do. As Paul would later go on to say in Romans, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To be more than a conqueror is to be a ruler. That's to be an heir upon the throne. That's what we've received. And so Paul uses that metaphor to describe the new relationship that Christians have in relationship to God the Father. And so he speaks of the Christian being adopted into the family of God. Now let me tell you a story. When you think about adoption, a couple of things take place in Roman adoption. First of all, the adopted person loses all their rights in their old family. And so on the other hand, even though they lose their rights, they gain those same rights in the new family. And so they receive a new name, they receive a new family, they receive a new calling. But here's what happens. The adopted child becomes the heir to the father's estate. And so even if you were children born naturally to the father, You have the right to that estate, and guess what? The adopted child has the right as well because they've been grafted in, they've been adopted in to the family of God, and so they're equally a joint heir with all their other siblings. Now, the siblings could look at that and say, that's not fair. Well, guess what? They can say it, but that's the way it was. And so it goes on to say that the third significant part of Roman adoption was that the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. It was almost as if it never took place. It, it just wasn't there. It was forgotten about, okay? And so the final part of Roman adoption was in the eyes of the law where the adopted child was seen as an absolute child of the new father now I want to illustrate this for you we live in a world today where our country is crying out for people to be foster parents that's where you would would take in a child in your home and love them and raise them for a certain period of time you're fostering them doesn't mean you're adopting them. It just means that you're fostering them and loving and caring for them until a new home comes up, or you may be that new home, or until the parents of that child get back on their feet and do things the way they're supposed to do them and can earn their child back. That sounds crazy, but that's essentially what takes place. We're living in a country We're living in a county right now, Stephen, you can help me with this, there are four to five families in Lamar County that have said we'll be foster parents. Four to five. Now You think about that for a moment. There's a whole lot more children out there needing a place to live than there are homes saying, come live with us. Well, a few years ago, one of Carrie Ann's youngest sisters, her and her husband, decided after much prayer and much thinking and a lot of wisdom and talking to other people, that they wanted to open their home up to foster. And at that point, they weren't even thinking about adoption. They had, they had children of their own. They were just thinking, us opening our home to children who need a place in the meantime in the in-between stages. And so they did that. And they, uh, they fostered a little girl, and when she was right before her first birthday, they had started going through the process when they learned that this mother was willing to give up her rights. David and Julie said, we want to adopt this little girl. And so they went through that process. But for that to happen, the birth mother had to say, I give up. I give up my rights, and I'm giving them over to you. And so they adopted little Jillian. She's ours. She's in our family now. She's not even looked upon now as an adopted child it's as if she has been with us from the get-go. And so, a few months, a few years later, they, uh, they fostered another little baby, got her from birth. And right just a few months ago in April, the same situation happened where the mother said, I can't do this. I, I, cannot, I cannot raise this child in a way that she needs. And so... I'm willing to give up my rights. And so David and Julie adopted another little girl. And so they have two girls in their family where the or the birth mothers literally said, I can't do this. And they're willing to give their precious child to a mother and a father who could raise them in a way that they needed it. Now... All they will ever know will be stories if it's told of how they used to live. Because from birth, all they've ever known is what David and Julie have reached out to them and offered to them in a loving Christian home. They will never have a clue what their life could have been like. You know what? You and I will never have a clue of what our life could have been because God rescued us. Church, we've got to understand that. We've got to grasp that, that the only hope that we have is for us to be rescued. And God did that through Jesus. Now he's wanting you and I to be agents of that and to tell that story and to live, as Paul says, you've been adopted, now live that way. You've been adopted into the family, now live that way. Be that way. You see, a lot of times what you and I do, we try to be somebody that we're not. We try to be somebody that we can't ever be. When in essence, all that God wants us to do is to live as if we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Live that way. Because that's the state that you're in. And he says here, when he cries out, Abba, Father, you realize... That's translated, it means daddy. That's the highest form of love that there can be. And so think about it. God loves us so much that he longs for us as his children to cry out to him, daddy, Abba, father. And when we cry out that way, just like our own children cry out to us as their daddies, Man, we know that voice, don't we? We know our children's voice. We know that cry. We know that scream. We know that sound. God knows it. And he longs for his children to cry out to him, Abba, Father. To be a son is to have the Most High God as your father. And so, if God's our Father and He gives us His Spirit, and Paul says we are more than conquerors, look in Revelation chapter 21 verse 7 and look at the beautiful thing that transpires. He who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son. He who overcomes. Now that's the end. That's the the end of the story. But to he who overcomes, I'm going to be your God, he says, and he will be my son. And he will be my daughter. And knowing that, there's a few obligations that comes to us. And I want to give you four of them this morning as we close. Because the challenge is this. Paul talks about it. He cries it out. But what he wants believers to do is to take hold of your sonship. Realize who you are. Realize where you are in the body of Christ And it's all because God loves you. And so a couple of challenges that come that way is this. We need to live life by the Spirit every day. Live life by the Spirit. Number two, you need to seek out our identity in Christ. Nobody defines who you are but Almighty God. Now, Satan's going to try, and other people are going to try, and circumstances will try. But church, you know what? The challenge we face, don't put your identity in anything else but Christ. He's your identity. Number three, you need to know your role in the family of God. Everybody has a role in family, right? It may be to clean the house. It may be to vacuum. It may be to keep your room clean. I don't know what it is. But just like you have a role in your physical family, in the church, you've got a role to do. You've got to figure it out. What's my gift? What has God gifted me with? How can I use that to be a blessing to other people? And then number four, you need to press on toward your reward. Because in the meantime, what we're striving to do is get to that point where John says in Revelation to overcome to be overcomers and inherit all of this. And you know the beautiful thing? It's yours for the taking, but you've got to take hold of it. You've got to take hold of your sonship and realize, just as Peter said, as we read at the beginning of service, we have been chosen and called out to be the people of God. Now, some may be here this morning, and you've never made the decision to do what we've read about this morning. You've never made the decision to deny yourself, to put Christ on in baptism, and to raise to be a brand new person. We're here this morning to help you do that, or to talk to you about that if you want to study further about it. Maybe some are here, and you just need prayers. I don't know what state you're in, what condition your heart is in, but I know this, God is a loving God. He's a forgiving God, and he stands ready to meet you exactly where you are. Let's do that this morning as we stand and as we sing.